Well, good morning again. It's good to see you all. Thank you for gathering here this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this sanctuary. For those of you that are gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into your home and your dining room, living room, wherever you happen to be uh, watching. I'm excited that uh, we get to dive into a brand new sermon series this morning. And if I've never... First, if I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Jamie. It's my joy to be one of the pastors here uh, at Crosspoint. And this morning, we are diving into a new series on the life of Abraham. And I'll explain this sort of subtitle of uh, Field Guide to Loving God and what we mean by that and some of the hopes for this. Um, but we are going to do a deep dive into this man's life. It's an account that we see primarily beginning at the end of Genesis 11 and then running through Genesis 22. I mean, there's a little bit more on either end, but we're going to spend primarily our, our time in those particular texts starting today and literally running up through the end of May with a break for Holy Week, for Palm Sunday, and for Easter. And so if you're wondering, like, are we going to get to know about Abraham? Yeah, like we're going to deep dive into his life, and not just because, like, well, we needed something to preach about, um, but the reality is this, that Abraham, his name starts out as Abram, if you're familiar with his story at all, is one that if you were to do a word study, like a search for just his name in the scriptures, shows up over 300 times between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is one that the apostle Paul would write is the father of the faith. He's literally the father of us all, Jew and Gentile. In fact, you have three major world religions of Judaism, the Muslim community and Christianity that all would trace back to Abraham, interestingly enough, and we'll get into some of that uh, as we get further into this, but he is a man of great influence, all right? Um, somebody that certainly shows up a ton in the scriptures and one that is going to help guide us as we study his life. The book of James speaks of him as one that, as we'll look, he, was, he believed God. He believed the promises of God, and he received the righteousness of God. It was credited to him as righteousness. And then James gives this little anecdote there at the end of that statement that says he was a friend of God. And so what do we have to learn from this man who's a friend of God, who was given the righteousness of God? And maybe you're thinking, all right, well, he is the hero we've been looking for. He's the one that's come to, to save the day. I want to put before you this. There are some very high highs in the life of Abraham, and there are lows and like by lows, I mean low, low points in the life of Abraham. Let me be very clear that the story of the Bible, we want to say this over and over again, there's one hero in the Bible, all right? It's not Abraham, in case you're wondering, all right? It is Jesus, and he's going to point us to our need for Jesus, and yet he is going to show us some things along the way of what it looks like to actually love God. And so as we get into this series this morning, I want to pose this question as we think about it. Like, what's most important in life? Like, what is the thing we're to give our time and energy to? And it's this question that if we were to go to the New Testament, we were to read the accounts of Jesus's life, like in Matthew and Mark and Luke, all three of those gospels tell a similar account of people coming up to Jesus. And they're, in essence, asking that question. Of all the things to focus on, Jesus, like, what's the most important? What is central? Where do I give my time and energy? Some 600 laws that the Jewish people were seeking to obey, they're like, can we distill it down? Like, do we give equal attention to all? Like, what is it? What is most important? One of those accounts is in Mark chapter 12. Let me read these words, verses 29 to 31 is where we find them. Jesus said this in response to this question, what's most important? The most important is, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and love the Lord your God with all your heart 
and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. And so Jesus distills it down. Love God and love your neighbor. He wants it to be very, very clear that this is what we're to focus on. Now, if you've been a part of a church, whether it be this church or any church for any amount of time, you're probably not thinking, well, wow, this is novel. I've never heard this before, right? I mean, I think we're probably familiar with this language, this idea, love God and love other people. But let me put before you that sometimes the things, like the more familiar we are with them, the greater the chance of actually like missing what actually is the beautiful simplicity, something to actually give our lives to that is a love of God and of neighbor. Like it's possible to be around it, be so familiar with it that we actually lose sight and begin pursuing other things. This is the central thing. Some of you have heard this story before, but I think of the time that I sat at a restaurant not too far up the road here on 436, some probably, it would be about 26 years ago now with the man that would become my father-in-law, and I began to ask him for his daughter's hand in marriage, and I was explaining why we wanted to get married, why I'd be a somewhat decent husband, things like that, right? And I got through my spiel very nervously, and his first question to me was, do you love her? And I was like, I'm an idiot. I forgot that part, right? Like, I forgot to say that in the midst of everything. Like, it's possible, right, to be talking about all these things and just forget, oh yeah, love. Like, love is what we're talking about. And God's very nature and character, he's described as he is love. And so what does it look like then to live a life of response of love to God? So Jesus boils it down, right? Love God and love your neighbor. And Abraham is going to help us see what that actually looks like. How do we actually do that? And in some ways, the second part of it, love your neighbor, feels a bit more maybe practical, tangible, something maybe I can wrap my mind around. Like if I see a neighbor that maybe is in need of something that we have, like, oh, they can borrow that thing. Or maybe a, a neighbor is, you know, they've been under the weather and to bring them a meal. I mean, like those things sort of make sense to me. But what does it look like to love God? Like, God doesn't need anything. He's not a, a neighbor that's like, hey, you know, do you have any extra flour? Right? He's like, he owns literally everything. Like, he's not in need of what you have in your house. He's not in need of your advice or your thoughts, right, or mine. So what does it look like to love God? And how do we navigate all of this? It can be very confusing at times. I find myself wishing, right, that there was just more like clear instruction. Oh, I've got this decision. Okay, uh, let me turn to you know page 147 of my Bible. All right, and there is going to be the clear answer to everything that I need. And there are things in the Bible that are explicitly clear, right? Like if I walk out after the service today and see a car that's left in the parking lot and think, oh, that's actually nicer than what I drive, and I think. I'll just take it. I'm going to steal this car. There is a whole section in the scriptures about like thou shalt not steal, right? Like that part is clear. But then there are those other things in life where it's like, well, how do I navigate this? What does wisdom look like? Should I take this job? Should I move to this city? Should I marry this person? Like those things, you can't just go and find like, well, I've got a chapter and verse on what that exactly looks like. Oh, my kid's facing this. Well, here's exactly what to do. Tim Keller, in uh, uh, commenting on this, in particular on the book of Proverbs, says this. He was quoted as saying, 
Wisdom is knowing what to do with the 80% of life where the moral rules don't apply. Now, he doesn't mean that the moral rules don't apply to things like, oh, you can just disregard. But there are those points in life where it's like, how do I navigate this? And I think loving God fits in that. Like, clearly, there's some things we're not to do. But what does it actually mean? Like, how do we wrap our minds around that? And so in this series, as we're talking about it, this line here, a field guide to loving God. As much as I would love the explicit instructions, the reality is I think what we're going to see in the life of Abraham is more of this field guide. So you kind of think in the, those terms, right? I don't know, maybe these, I think these books still exist. Now we just find it on our phone probably, right? Um, if you happen to be out in the woods and you're hiking along, like a field guide wouldn't be, it's not directions, but it's like while you're out, if you're like, oh, look at that bird. I wonder what kind of bird that is. Oh, look at these particular tracks. And all of a sudden you look and you're like, oh, those are wolf tracks. Oh, okay, like I need to pay attention to my surroundings. Or they're bear tracks, right? You find yourself hungry out in the woods and there's this bush and it has berries on it. And you're like, oh, those look very appetizing. You might consult the field guide and you look and you compare and you're like, okay, these are safe to eat or these will kill me in a matter of minutes, right? Like that's what helps. And it's not giving all the explicit things. The field guide doesn't know exactly where you are in these things, but the reality is it's there. It can shape and guide, all right? Now, God obviously knows the particulars of your life, but as we look at the life of Abraham, you're not going to find verses in here that are telling you explicitly what to do in every situation. But I do think it's a helpful guide. Maybe another way to think about it is like it's, it's a compass. It's pointing us in the right direction. Ultimately, Abraham is helping us see what it means to love God. We will see it in the parts of his life that are an example Scriptures give us examples like, hey, this should inspire us, encourage us, show us what it looks like. But there are also other times where it's a warning. Abraham is going to veer off track. You literally can, his story really starts, picks up in Genesis chapter 12. First half, it's getting an A. By the last half, you're like, this dude has lost his mind, all right? Um, and then he does the same exact thing a few chapters later, all right? We'll just say he's not winning husband of the year awards very early on in these, some of these texts, okay? And so what do we do? In all of this, we're looking ultimately to God, the love that he has for us. But we do see, even in the brokenness, we see things in the life of Abraham, this one who is this father of the faith. And so a moment ago I read in Jesus' response, right? What's most important? And we read out of Mark, book of Mark, and you could find this in Matthew, you can find it in Luke. What Jesus is reading, though, and what, simply, not reading, but what he is responding with is something out of the Old Testament. He's actually reciting from memory what was regarded as the greatest commandment. And so I want to start in our time in the life of Abraham here to talk about this call to love God. Next week, we'll start to dive deeper into his life. But here this this morning is a bit more of an introduction. And so I want to invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. That's where we're going to see the words that Jesus spoke in the book of Mark. Um, if you have a Bible, please turn there. There's some paperback Bibles, any of the seat backs, in the backs of the pews that you can turn there. You can also get your phone out and go to cplife.church, and you'll see a tab there that says sermon notes, and you can click that, and you'll find the text as well as anything that's up on the slides and some space to take notes. But let me go ahead and read this. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 
to 12. This morning, we want to look briefly at this call to love, our failure to love, and then an example of love. It's just an introduction to this calling for all of us, not only for Abraham, but also for each one of us who want to follow and to love God. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, pick it up in verse 4. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. And bind them as a sign on your hand. Let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. Verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give you a land with large and beautiful cities that you did not build, houses full of every good thing that you did not fill them with, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And when you eat and are satisfied, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. And so what we have here initially in the book of Deuteronomy is this call to love. It's a summation of like, what's the most important thing? What is our life to be given to? What should we give our time and energy and affection towards? It's this call to actually love God. And the context for this, this is after the life of Abraham. These are actually Moses' words as the people are getting ready to go into the promised land. As Moses even makes reference to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, because Abraham has promised that he'd be made into a great people, that he'd bless, he'd be, this nation would bless all the other nations of the world, that land would be given, like all of these amazing promises that we'll get into as we get further into this series. But right here, Moses is writing this to remind the people, like, this is the most important thing. In fact, and this is what Jesus was quoting later on. And then Jesus, because he's Jesus and can add things to it, is like, all right, that's the first, the, the primary thing, and then love your neighbor as yourself. So again, he quoted, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is a particular prayer of the Jewish people from the time of Moses to present day morning and evening to pray this. It's referred to as the Shema. Say it with me. Shema. All right, it's kind of fun to say. Shema, all right? So this particular prayer is something that Jewish people would grow up, like Jesus would have prayed this prayer out of Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four and five. Shema is the first word of it. It's, it's listen. But the call there is not simply like, yeah, just hear these words, but Embedded in that is this idea of like, listen and obey. Like there's action oriented, there's an action oriented nature to all of this, right? You think about maybe if, if you're a parent and telling a child something to do, it's one thing for them to be able to repeat the words back to you, right? But it's another thing, like to really listen is to actually go and do the thing that you have asked for them to do. You're a teacher and you're asking kids in your class to do something, right? So there's this call right out of the gate, listen, Listen, so it's this reminder every day as they would pray this. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it's making a comment not just on the nature of God as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, but in this particular context more about the exclusive nature of our God. He is the one true God. And so listen up, 
Every day when you get up, pray this prayer. Before you go to bed at night, pray this prayer. Remind yourself over and over and over again what's the most important thing. Listen, Israel, love the Lord your God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. It says, then love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So this would be prayed over and over and over again. Now, that word love, here, all right, the word that's being used is ahava. Now, this word is one that is intentionally being used because it has, again, it's about action. It's about obedience. It's a, it's a, there's movement to it. There's sacrifice that's entailed in it. It's not just simply repeating the words I love, but there's a doingness to it. It's not the word that would be used for like romantic love or sexual love. That's a whole other Hebrew word. The Hebrews actually had multiple words that could be used for love. We, however, here's the problem. We use that word, right? I mean, it's just such a mushy, kind of sloppy, like it could mean anything, right? Like we should not be allowed to use the same word to talk about like, I love pizza and I love my wife, right? Like that word love, there's, I feel like there should be a difference there. If there's not, we probably got some big issues, right? Like, why do we use that terminology? I love my best friend and I love tacos. Wait, what? Like, it's just it's very, very strange. Don't get me wrong, tacos and pizza are amazing. But get it, like, it's, it, like there should be, like, no, these other things are more important. So that's why this word, though, is being used. It's this call to Ahava, like to, to love the Lord your God, this God who is one. Listen up, pay attention, love him. It's action-oriented. And then it says, with your heart, your soul, and your strength. And the words there, these Hebrew words, we start to get at this deeper understanding of what it means. So the word there for heart, this love, like the idea here is certainly what generates life. Ancient people didn't have a full understanding of how all of the biology, like all the parts of the, the body worked. But there are heart attacks that are heart stopping is recorded in the scriptures. Like they had some understanding of like that organ, like there's something important that it's doing. And so it was believed to generate life, physical life. But with the lack of understanding of the brain and the mind, there was also a belief that like the intellectual life is kind of birthed there. Affections, desires. Like this word is showcasing like here's the control center. Here's like the emotional, intellectual Devotion, like all of that kind of epicenter of life. It's a way to say, all right, ahava, have this action-oriented, sacrificial love to the Lord your God. He's the one exclusive God. He's the one worthy of your energy and affection of your love. And then this idea of soul, which can be translated as throat, but also means this kind of totality of your being. Again, it's another way of saying all of who you are. And then strength, which is fascinating, is there are other words that could be used for strength. A lot of commentators will say that is probably not how it should be translated. The idea here is it's really a much more like an adverb. It's a way of saying this is very or much. It's saying like love the Lord your God with the totality, with the muchness of your life, your very being, like every bit of you. So these are not like separate calls. It's not like, well... From nine to noon this morning, I'm gonna love God with my heart and then I'll move into loving him with my soul and later on with my strength. No, it's like, it's just a way of layering these things to say, are you all in? Do you love God with the totality of your being? So that's the call. 
verses six to seven, then said, these words that I'm giving you are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them. So there's this call to pass this on. And this is a call to all of us that are Christians, whether you have children or not. There's a call to pass on, to have a legacy of love toward God as you realize that he has loved you. And how do you do this? Well, apparently we need to repeat. It's not just children that need things repeated to them. I need things repeated to me over and over and over again because I can't seem to get it through my thick skull. And God knows this about us, right? So repeat them to your children. Talk about them. Well, when? Well, when you're in your house. Cool. What about when you go outside? Yep, when you walk along the road. How about, are you ever done? No, when you're ready to lie down, you talk about loving God. What's the first thing you do in the morning? You talk about loving God, like when you get up. It's another picture of totality, like we're all in. Will we have, will you and I have a legacy of this kind of love, this, this kind of devotion? Not because we have to earn anything. It's been earned by Jesus. But this is the best possible way to live is loving our God. And then the text continues to help remind us. Bind them as a sign in your hand. Let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your, and on your city gates. It's just another sort of tactile reminder. Perhaps you have seen Jewish people were these kind of like this straps around their arms as they're, as they're praying these particular prayers. It's a way to remember. There's ways that they would take part, portions of the sacred text, these mini scrolls, and they would have them there like outside of like the, the door of a home or at the city gates, right? It's just this constant reminder. The way you might hang a cross in your house or have a Bible verse that's, you know, like on a sticky note on your mirror, or whatever it might be in your home, like these reminders of who God is. It says to let them be a symbol on your forehead. By the time of Jesus, this would have been, what it would have looked like is literally these kind of like leather straps with a small leather box, and in it were contained some of the holy scriptures, particularly the Shema, as this reminder, like this is what we carry with us, this reminder that you imagine that on your forehead, you're just trying to like look out, and it was always sort of in your line of sight. Oh yeah, we're supposed to be devoted to God. They're called phylacteries. You'll still see people using these things. Now, I'm not advocating for that. If y'all show up wearing those next week, great, that's, that's fine, all right? But there is a call to encourage one another, call to practically figure out, like, how are we going to love this God? Now, we wish we could just stop there and be like, yep, and everybody from that time forward, they all obeyed and we all lived happily ever after. But we know there's a failure, and God, even anticipating this, says this. As we look back at verses 10 to 12, these words are written. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your ancestors, and he lists Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give you. Now look at here. Look at the provision of God. A land with large and beautiful cities that you did not build. You did not contribute to this. This is a gift. Houses full of every good thing. They're fully furnished. They've got all the furniture. They're meticulously decorated. And the fridge and the pantry are stocked full of food. This is as turnkey as it gets. That's from God. You didn't do that, all right? Cisterns that you did not dig. Vineyards and olive groves. You didn't plant them, but you get to enjoy them. And when you eat and are satisfied, I hear he says this, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Might I put before you that the greater the level of like the, like the gifts that we have, 
The more that we've received even good, enjoyable things in this world, the greater risk we are at, the greater propensity for us to give undue attention to those things, to elevate that house or that yard or that trip or how people think about you or what your body looks like. All of these things, we're called to be good stewards, but we can elevate those things. And God is communicating to us, hey, I know the tendency of your, your hearts. You're gonna be prone to forget. Do not forget. Have you heard this about uh, this little creature, the goldfish, right? Apparently they have a 10-second memory. I don't know how people figured that out. I've never had a conversation with a goldfish, but apparently that's what is believed to be true, that they see something, they might be swimming around in their bowl, like, oh, look at that little fascinating little castle there, and then they forget about it 10 seconds later, and then they round the corner in their bowl again, like, whoa, look at that. Must keep them entertained, right? But this 10-second memory. Now, the reality is I operate this way a lot, God, thank you for your provision. Thank you for your grace. And then like that, I forget. And I'm on to discontentment. And I'm on to frustration. I'm on to jealousy. I'm on to thinking, oh, if only I had this or that and live like a goldfish. And God knows this. He's saying, hey, I need you to remember Part of what we're doing this morning is reminding each other of God's grace. And the storyline of the Bible, what gets us up to Abraham for just a moment, this is a, a terrible disservice to the first 11 chapters of Genesis, but in the next like five minutes, let's do just this sweeping overview. Let's talk for a moment about the garden, about the ark, and about Babel. Story starts in a garden, right? We know that everything is beautiful and harmonious. It says God intended it to be, and he tells the, the, the original parents, right, Adam and Eve, like, be fruitful and multiply, cultivate, steward, subdue the earth, advance this, make the rest of the world like this garden. And it's glorious for two chapters, but by chapter three, we know that they, out of fear, perhaps, or pride, or some sinister combination of both, believe the lie of the serpent, become discontent, forget God's faithfulness, that they literally have everything. But again, sometimes the more you have, the greater at risk you are to forgetting God's provision and thinking, oh, but I need something more. And so they reach for the fruit. And they're banished from the garden and curses are pronounced on them. And we don't have to go very far. We just like turn one more page and we realize now brother is killing brother. And things are just descending to the point that if they're started in the garden, by the time we get to Genesis 6, so we're six chapters in. God looks out of where all of humanity is just like, we need a reboot. We need a restart. I'm going to literally wipe the, the face of the earth. I'm going to wipe out humanity and we'll start again. And he sees one man named Noah, says that Noah was righteous. And so he spares Noah and his family. A gigantic boat is built, right? And we know the story, and the two by two, the animals come in. And it's this beautiful story, and yet, can we also be honest, it's a terrifying story. Like, why do we tell our children this? God spared a few people, and then the rest of the people, he drowned, all right? I mean, it's, it's insane, really. What's that scratching noise? Oh, people trying to get in the boat, but they can't, right? I probably shouldn't have said that, but anyway, all right? It's, it's a crazy, I mean, it's intense. God literally wipes, now, now, here's what ends up happening, though. It's Genesis 1 and 2 begins to play out again. Like, there's new creation. So 
the boat comes to rest, Adam and, sorry, Noah and his family, you know, they depart the, the boat, and God makes a promise, I'm never gonna flood the earth, puts the rainbow in the sky, covenants with, with Noah, and then tells Noah the same thing that he told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And we wonder, oh, okay, do over, here it goes. Is Noah gonna be the one to set things right? And it starts out good, because the first act that Noah does is it says he plants a vineyard. What's he doing? He's creating a garden. So we're back to Genesis 1 and 2. Be fruitful and multiply. Cultivate. Oh, take care of the earth. He plants a garden. He plants a vineyard. We're like, cool. Only then to have the grapes grow in the vineyard for him to make wine and get drunk and then pass out naked in his tent. This is actually in the Bible. You should read it, right? Like, this is what actually plays out. And then something that is not really detailed, and that's probably okay, but some shameful act that takes place with one of his sons, and you realize humanity is in a bad spot because though the rest of humanity was wiped out, sin wasn't wiped out because sin went on the boat with Noah and his family, and sin got off of the boat with Noah and his family. And though he did some good things, you realize, oh, oh no, we're back to where we were when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter 11, it's at the end of Genesis chapter 11 that we're introduced to Abram and his, some of his extended family. But what is at the beginning of Genesis 11 is that all of humanity now is in this spot of like, we wanna make a name for ourselves. It's the same lie that's playing out over and over again. And so they construct this tower, and they're trying to get up to God. It's the Tower of Babel. God looks down, and he scatters the people, changes, confuses them with different languages. And this is where we pick up the story. And one might think, okay, well, we're going to get introduced to Abram, who becomes Abraham, and his wife Sarai, who becomes Sarah. Like, they clearly, think about it. There was no humanity. Then there was Noah and his family. Now things have digressed the point of Babel. Maybe, though, somebody within the family line has stayed pure. Somebody has been loving God faithfully. And we think, yep, this is why God calls Abraham. As we will dive into more next week, but just as sort of a sneak peek in this, that's not true. We learn about where Abram is from and Ur of the Chaldeans. We know that there's lunar, literally worship of the moon god that was there. You're like, well, that didn't affect his family, except that his father and some other members of his family, including his own wife, are named after the moon gods and some of their associates. So this sort of idolatry, this, this, this worship of false gods, like, that's Abram. So from the time of Noah until we get there, like, nobody has been paying attention to the most important thing. There's nobody that's good. And so all of this, First and foremost, I said, it's not about Abram and his perfect love of God. It's God's love. It's God's choosing. It's God sovereignly saying, I'm going to take this person, pluck him out of false worship, and call him to myself. That's how the story plays out. And we see Abram's response. The writer of Hebrews would say it this way. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Isn't that interesting? A contrast. You got the city, you got the Tower of Babel trying to make a name, or you can pursue the city of God. 
in his book on on Genesis, the gospel in Genesis, Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, all of us either have our eye on the city of man or on the city of God. That is the difference between people who are not Christians and those who are. It is all a question of whether we are trying to make ourselves great or whether we realize that God alone can give us greatness through adopting us into his family. We are either trying to build our self-sufficient civilization or we realize that we must wait upon God to be blessed by him. It is one or the other, but this is what God offers. He offers us this blessing, this wonderful name, this other city, the city of God, not the city of the world, the eternal city, not the city of time. That's what we're created for, to be devoted, worshiping, loving our God, but we know there's a failure of love. And so very briefly, I want to show you what we're going to be looking at in the life of Abraham, this example of love. We'll see it primarily from the end of Genesis 11, picking up in Genesis 12 through chapter 22. This is what we'll be covering together. I encourage you even just spend some time like reading through this section of the scriptures. But there are four things. There's a lot of things, but there's four primary things that we're going to see that Abraham shows us what it looks like to love God. The first few verses of Genesis 12, verses 1, 6 to 7. The Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house, the land that I will show you. Verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the site of Shechem at the Oak of Moriah. And at the time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. What does Abram do? He built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. God shows up, picks Abram, not because he's amazing or awesome, to demonstrate his grace, that's how our God works, and tells him to go. If you happen to grow up reading the King James Version, it says, get thee out. It's kind of fascinating, right? It's a little bit more fun way to say it. Abram, get thee out, like, get out of this land. And then Abram ends up in a place where they would have worshiped Baal. And the normal thing would have been to show up in a foreign land and say, okay, what's the God here? And set up that sort of altar, but that's not what he does. He sets up an altar to the one true God, to Yahweh. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is the true God. I don't imagine that went over well with his neighbors. Who is this guy and what is this altar he's setting up? And so the first lesson we're gonna see throughout this is that loving God means being loyal even if it costs you. We're gonna see that in the life of Abraham. And what we see with him is he's setting up an altar in the midst of foreign gods. And that's not much different than the world you and I inhabit. Your neighbors may not have altars in their backyard, but the reality is we sacrifice a lot of things on the altar of career. We make sacrifices, all kinds of things that we do to like have people approve of us, to love us, to gain the affection of people. I mean, there's so many things, and the question becomes, will you and I be faithful in the land of foreign gods? Abram, his life is gonna help us see this. Secondly, loving God looks like trusting him even when life doesn't make sense. We're gonna see that over and over again in the life of Abraham. That these words even that we read just a moment ago, Genesis 12, the first four verses, the Lord said to Abram, go from your land, like get thee out. And I think if I was there, and I'm guessing you might be like, okay, uh, where are we going? But you notice he doesn't do any of that. 
Like the way the Lord works as he calls and he equips us along the way with what we need and the information we need when we need it. It's not always all given up front. And so loving God looks like trusting him even in the times when it doesn't make sense. And there's lots of portions of life where things don't make sense. I know you know that. And Abraham's gonna encourage us in that. And then he says, I will make you into a great nation. Well, at the end of chapter 11, what we read and what we'll hear throughout the story is that his wife is barren. So wait a minute, you're gonna make me into a great nation and I don't even have one kid? I don't have a whole nation. I, I, like, it's just me and my wife. And yet, there's an invitation to trust him. As we get further in the book, we will see that loving God looks like pursuing and seeking justice, doing what's right, and helping to set things right. We just spent our entire January series talking about these themes of justice and righteousness, mishpat and tzedakah. And we will see by the time we get to Genesis 18, for instance, we'll see it in other places, but we will see Abraham having a visitor, and the visitor is God himself, who has heard the outcry of injustice in the place of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we are told that Abram is just and right, that he has this tzedakah and this mishpat, and that he will even begin pleading with God to show mercy and grace. Like, it's a fascinating thing. He's seeking justice, he's seeking, he wants things to be set right. So we'll see that as we go along. And another key theme that we will see, and it's exemplified in what will be the closing scene in our time in the study of Abraham, is loving God looks like expecting God to be good even when life falls apart. The long-awaited son for Abraham and for Sarah is Isaac. The one that when Sarah was told, you're gonna have a son in your ripe old age, when the writer of Hebrews would say, like both Abraham and Sarah were as good as dead, that's like the politically correct way of saying like they're super old, right? Like um, uh, they end up having a kid and she laughs since so they actually name their son Laughter, just as this reminder. <laughs> Doesn't God have a sense of humor? This is crazy. And this son then God asks Abraham to take into sacrifice. And in Genesis 22, we read these words, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he laid it on his son Isaac. And in his hand, he took the fire and the knife and the two of them walked on together. And then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, my father. And he replied, here I am, my son. And Isaac said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And then the two of them walked on together. Abraham believes and expects God to be good. He believes that God will provide even when life, I mean, life had to seem like it was completely falling apart in that moment. But God will provide. Do we believe that about our God? Do we see that as we look back on our life and as we look back at the totality of just how God has been at work in the world? And so I wanna close with this. I told you at the very beginning, Abraham, though, is not the hero. That'll become very, very clear. And yes, he does give us some examples of things and ways to love God and the things we just walked through, these four things, they are true. But ultimately, this is a story about God's love for us and his love demonstrated for us in the sending of his son, Jesus. 
Because as we look at these things about what it looks like to love God, the only person who has ever done this perfectly is Jesus. And the reason you and I can even have an opportunity to love God is just in response to the ways that Jesus so faithfully loved God and then we were given his righteousness. You think about this call like be loyal even if it costs you. You see Jesus out in the wilderness being tempted by the devil being promised, you'll get every kingdom. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to die. Just bow down to me. Let's join forces, the devil says to Jesus. But he's loyal to God as Father. That's what love looks like, even though it would cost him. Think about Jesus trusting, even when things don't make sense, in the garden, praying, Lord, can this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Think about Jesus seeking justice, setting things right, He declared the kingdom of heaven is at hand and then he began to love and care for the outcasts and the marginalized to bring healing and restoration everywhere he went. He brought mishpat, he brought justice and righteousness. And then this belief to expect and to believe that God is good. It was one thing for Isaac to carry wood on his back, to be bound. But then we think about Jesus, there's another son that would climb another hill and not just a bundle of wood, but a wooden cross. And he wouldn't just get to the point of it looking like he was going to die. This son would actually die. And he would die for you and for me and believing that God, this is a working out of the good plan that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit were working out so that we could be brought in Into your hands I commit my spirit because he trusted, no, God is going to bring about his perfect plan. He's gonna bring about salvation. All of these things that we see in the life of Abraham ultimately point to Jesus. And so before we close, I just wanna give us a moment. I'll pray for us, but be thinking through not only this morning, but as we go through this series, what does it look like to repent? What does it look like to repent of the ways that we have failed to love God? We have lost sight of what the big E on the eye chart is. We've failed to see what is most important. And then let's remember, let's remember the love that God has for us, the way he has loved us in his son Jesus, and we'll rejoice together. And part of it we get to do is here as a family. So I'll pray, and the worship team's gonna come back up, and we're gonna rejoice together. We're gonna remember together. By singing songs, we're gonna remember together by participating in this communion meal, which I'll explain in just a moment. But let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you for this story of Abraham and the ways that it will challenge us and encourage us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work through this series and this study as we dive into it here, as we discuss it in community groups, as just conversations spill out, as we read these accounts on our own. Your word is living and active, God, and we thank you for that. These words, these stories that were penned thousands of years ago, they still speak today. So speak to us, challenge us, remind us through the life of Abraham of the love that you have for us, your faithfulness to us. And would you lead us into greater lives of devotion and love towards you, just in joyful response to the love that we have received. And God, would this be for your glory and our joy, we pray in Christ's name, amen.